Good morning. Uh, you guys hear me in the back? Is it good? Okay. So, yeah, as uh, Gary said, uh, name's Chet Miller, and came to California two Mays ago. So, uh, fairly new to California, not new to the West Coast, though. Uh, that's when the Air Force just saw fit to, to send me to Travis. So, it's been a huge blessing. So, whether it's the Air Force or it's God, then it's probably up for debate. But, uh, so I was out here for a year uh, by myself, and then Chelsea finished up graduate school in Oklahoma, and she moved out here. And so it's been, it's been a real blessing uh, finally getting to live together with her after five years of marriage. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, I, uh, it's just a little bit about myself. Uh, I know... Um, new churches and everything, and uh, Gary kind of alluded to it, we, we bicycle a lot together, and so that was kind of, first came as a church, and as we all know, Gary stands at the back and greets everybody, so first Sunday is here, hey, you like bicycling, I like bicycling, one thing led to another, and pretty soon we were friends, and I was like, well, if I'm friends with the pastor, that's probably the church I should go to, so, <laughs> and then uh, when Chelsea got here, I mean, Joy's been, been awesome, she lives up to her name. So we just thank you for that joy uh, and just being so welcoming. Uh, as you know, we've been uh, going through the book of Matthew, and uh, Gary's been very gracious with my schedule. As you alluded to, I'm gone a lot, so a lot of you probably think I'm a visitor every other week. But uh, I do, do, in fact, live here just uh, half the time I'm somewhere else. And so uh, we originally talked back in December about, uh, or November, some time frame about what chapter we wanted to do. We decided on Matthew chapter 20. So we're going a little out of order, so I just kind of like to uh, put us in context as where we are into the book, and I know Gary's done a really good job of uh, setting up the, kind of the structure and the flow of the book of Matthew. So where we're at in chapter 20 is Jesus is now on the, on the road to Jerusalem, and we see uh, kind of a pivotal moment here in the book as Jesus is finishing up his three years of ministry, and we're now in the last days. We're, we're literally the start of the last seven or eight days before his crucifixion. And he says, in uh, verse 17, it reads, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So there's kind of this ominous finality of these last uh, ten or so verses here in Matthew that I think we should just really ponder on and just be cognizant of as Jesus is talking, that just his impending death is weighing over him. And it's weighing over his disciples, as we'll see in a little bit. So before we... uh, we jump into the, the text. I'd like, just like to pray. Uh, I don't know if you had a week like I did, but it's just been one of those weeks where I just feel like I haven't come up for air. Uh, it's been super busy. I got back Sunday night from a trip, and then we've had the air show, as you can see. And my family were all a bit sunburned. I've been a lot of, spent a lot of time on the ramp this week. And so I just hope that in this and in, in this time of prayer, we could just step back and just get a little breath of fresh air. Lord, I just come before you humbly, uh, just asking that you'd speak through me, that you'd speak through your text today. Uh, I just thank you for this family. I just thank you for the fun we've had this morning. And God, I just ask that our hearts would be open and our minds would be uh, receptive to the words that you have. And God, uh, I just want to finish this prayer with saying amen, being so be it, uh, as it is because you're the truth. Amen. So Matthew uh, chapter 20, verse 20, that's where we're going to start for the day. 
It starts with a mother's request. Ah, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that'd be Salome, came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit to your right and the other to your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Bold statement. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this text, I, I was kind of thinking about how to kind of start relating this to our lives, and I had come up with a story in my life about pilot training that I wanted to tell, but this morning, uh, during the service, I want to tell a different story. Uh, especially after this week, I just wanted to tell a story of us. I just want to tell a story of this large family that one Sunday morning came together, uh, just decided to come together, you know, no other reason, no other connection, uh, other than just the relationship that they have together and the relationship with the Father. And so they come together for family worship Sunday, and uh, on that Sunday, they saw the picture of true greatness. They saw uh, just from the greeting time of saying hello to each other and caring about each other to uh, Uncle John and the kids rocking us with their latest hit. Uh, still has Jeremiah and I swinging, you know. We're, we're into it. And then uh, to Jeannie and Mary getting baptized and everyone giving us a standing ovation because we care about them and we care about lives change. Uh, singing about Christ's reckless love for us and just fueling that power in our chest. And I just, I just want to present before you that that's just the illustration of true greatness right there. Like I, I don't know if I even need to preach that sermon when we just can witness that story of us together and that impact in our lives. And that's, that's true greatness right there. So in this text, uh, and thinking about how to break down the, the structure of it and try to have a somewhat of coherent flow, I decided to really focus on the people. Uh, and I'd just like to take a few minutes on each person and just be like, you know, this is an observation about them. This is who they are. Maybe this is what we can learn from them. So to start with, uh, we see right away uh, when it says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, uh, that'd be the mother of James and John, and uh, it doesn't say it in this text, but uh, it says it in Mark, the book of Mark, when it tells this story as well. And uh, from context, uh, we know that this lady's name is probably Salome. She was uh, really close with Jesus. Uh, obviously, she was the mother of two of Jesus' disciples. Uh, she was with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary Magdalene. She was at the cross during the crucifixion. She uh, anointed Jesus' body after his, his death. And uh, he was the, or she was even potentially the aunt of Jesus. So we're talking a woman who's very intimately familiar with who Jesus is and following him. So in that day and age, it wasn't unusual for a woman to present a, a request to someone close to the family, especially like if it was a relative. Uh, it was just kind of a common 
uh, custom of the day. And so she presents this request to Jesus uh, for her two sons. And when we look at this request, this, Lord, grant that my sons will sit in your right and to your left, uh, kind of an illustration comes to mind on this. And especially with the springtime, the cut grass, you know, kind of smells some baseball leather on the mitts. I think of Little League. And we've all been there. We've all either sat in the stands or played out in the field, and there's the, the very active parent, I'll say. We'll say that the parent is very involved in every play, very involved in every player, very involved in every decision the coach makes. And we call that the Little League parent. Do we not? You know, it's the, the quintessential parent that is overly involved, as we, as we might feel. Uh, and what's that parent doing? That parent's yelling, you know, my, my son or daughter should be shortstop, not right field. You know, they should be pitching, not playing second base. So they're preoccupied with the position and the success of their children. And, I mean, from the, from the initial outlook, do we not want all our kids, do we not want all our family members to be successful? Like, that is good to a certain extent. But I think if we were really to be honest with ourselves and to dig a little deeper, we might see that maybe that's where we're getting our self-worth from. Maybe the success of those that we care about and the success of those that are reflections on us are where we're getting our self-worth. I think we can also look uh, at her request as also is a this situation in which she has this false sense of what greatness is. Uh, just like the little league parent might be obsessed with what position their kid plays, I think oftentimes we conflate uh, success with position. Uh, we see in this life oftentimes that the powerful are the successful. You know, they have position. They have, they have placement. And uh, when she presents this view of greatness to Jesus, uh, we see his, like, very astute, his very... Uh, key to the point cutting response it says you don't know what you're asking can you drink the cup I'm going to drink and I think that's oftentimes like our prayer life I think oftentimes that we we have prayers that we present before Jesus and we say Lord give me this Lord grant this and if we were to really self reflect uh Sometimes I think we're praying for self-worth, for validation, and maybe position, rather than truly, humbly pursuing uh, our place and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Next is uh, James and John. Obviously, uh, they're the sons of Salome. Uh, we, we are, they're referred to as... Uh, Zebedee's sons, because there's lots of James and John, so that kind of gives us context. Uh, it's common in uh, ancient Hebrew culture and whatnot. You'd be referred to as son of a certain father. You know, that was kind of like our, our last name. So uh, that identifies who they are. They're also number three and number four. So when Jesus was going along the Sea of Galilee calling his disciples, they were, they were called from the very beginning. They're also called the sons of thunder in Mark. So if you have a temper, uh, you're with good company. <laughs> these are these were great men, and they could get riled up sometimes. So there's there's definitely hope. Uh, they're also set apart. Uh, I think that that plays a key role in in who they are, 
is uh, we see through the book of Matthew uh, these situations in which they've been set apart with Jesus. Not only are they a part of the chosen 12 apostles, which were the center of Jesus' discipleship, but also they were taken up on the mountain to see Moses and Elijah with Peter. Uh, Later in chapter 26, we see that Peter, James, and John are set apart in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Jesus' hardest time when he was sweating, literally tears of blood, they were with him in that moment. So as I said, uh, just kind of circling back to the the ominous uh, end, the the finality of the situation in these last days, uh, it wasn't it wasn't completely uh, apparent to the disciples, but you get a sense they really knew that the end was coming. Because in chapter 17 through 19, Jesus yet again predicts his impending death. And so you can't help but think that these disciples have been, they've been walking with Jesus for three years now. It's been a nomadic life. It's been a hard life. They've been persecuted. They haven't had money. Oftentimes they've gone without food. And you can't help but think, and rightfully so, they're thinking, what's in it for us? We know this is right. We know this is true. What's in it for us? And uh, I would encourage you anytime you you read through, especially uh, the Gospels, there's a lot of good that can come out of looking at the context of this passage before and after, asking yourself, what's the main point of this passage? And then what's the main point of the next one? What's the main point of this? And you'll see a flow uh, between passages that gives a greater meaning. Because sometimes we'll just read a story and we're like, well, what does that mean? But if you see that in contrast to the story before. So the start of the chapter, uh, we see the, the parable of the vineyard workers. And, and just to paraphrase it, it's a story of a landowner or a farmer, someone who goes out and says, I need workers for the day, and sees idle, idle people and calls them to himself and says, hey, come work for me today and I'll pay you a day's wage. Uh, a little later in the day, he realized there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I don't have enough workers. So again, he goes and he finds more idle workers and brings them in and says, I'll pay you a day's wage. I'll pay you what you do. And then finally, even at the end of the day, the, the, as the sun is getting low in the, the sky, he says, I need yet more workers. There's still an abundant harvest. So he goes and he gets more. And those workers only work an hour or so, and then it's uh, time to be paid. And he calls the workers up who had been called last and pays them first. And then finally, he gets to the very first worker that he paid. And the the first workers are disgruntled. They say, why? We did more work. Shouldn't we get more uh, more pay? And uh, the landowner says, am I not being generous? Am I not giving you what what you deserved? And what that illustration is, is an illustration of Christ and his grace on us. Like, God has an infinite level of grace for us, and we are eternally separated from Christ. And so to say... I became a Christian first, and I worked all this time, and I've done all these great things. I deserve more. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. God's kingdom is so much bigger than that, that just because you take something doesn't mean someone else doesn't have just as much. And we're all under the same grace, so we're all deserving uh, with the salvation of Jesus Christ, uh, eternal life. So that's what he's pointing out here. That's what, that's what Matthew's pointing out, is he's saying... James and John, you might be set apart, but you're not due any more than the other disciples, the other apostles. They're not due any more uh, than you or me standing right here because we're all under Christ's grace. And then we'll also see the one thing 
that were uh, guaranteed uh, in Christ. And that's the share in Christ's baptism. Uh, and Mark, the, he uses the word baptism instead of cup. And I think we got a great illustration of that this morning and what that means. But it's also, in this context, like what Jesus is about to come, you know, and face. Because the cup of water, you know, say the cup of water is across the room and that's what he's about to go do. That's kind of the, the illustration there. And so what is Jesus' cup? What, what is coming? And we know when we read ahead that Jesus is going to be abandoned. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be beaten and ultimately crucified. So that's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing to say, what do I promise you that you will drink of my cup? And this is what you're going to face. And so later in James' life, moments before he's being executed, I can't help but imagine that uh, he was thinking on Jesus' words, you'll drink of my cup. And he says, I'm drinking of Christ's cup right now. And then also John, who was banished to the mines of Patmos. That was a penal colony uh, where they just worked the mines. And it was just forced slave labor, you know. And the moments of being beaten or maybe in the time in which his body was so broken down that he couldn't work, he was reflecting on the fact that this is what Christ is saying. This is, this is the cup that I was about to drink. And so what does that mean for us? I mean, that, that paints a pretty dire picture. But I think what that points to is points to the greatness of eternal life and greatness of salvation that we have in Christ because that's what he's promising you. He's not promising you a comfortable, uh, successful life here in the now. He may bless you with that, but that is not what he's focusing on. He's saying, uh, he's saying the greatness is to come and the ultimate blessings of what we're going to experience are far outweigh any of the sufferings that we're going to, we're going to see in this life. So as we move down the passage, then, then we see the, the disciples. And uh, what is their response? Uh, it's a typical response. It's kind of what you would expect. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant, the two brothers. I think we've all been there. I think we've all been upset with other people. Uh, if it's been that week in school where you worked really hard and you said, I'm going to do all my homework, I'm going to ace my spelling test, I'm going to get that student of the week, and another student gets it. And you're like, what more did I do? I gave my everything. And, and why are they more deserving than me? Maybe you're coming up on your 10 years of employment with a, with a company and you've just poured everything into it. That's been your God. That's what you've pushed for. And the owner of the company hires their son or their daughter and puts them in the management position that you would do. And you just look from the outside and you're indignant. You're frustrated. You're like, why? You know, I don't deserve this justice. And so I think that comes, the question is like, do we have this right to be indignant? Do we have this right to be frustrated uh, with the position we're given? And, and Jesus would say, be a servant. You want to be great? It's so much harder to serve and to trust me in this moment than it is to have the accolades of now and to Christ as true greatness, as true service. And then how does also Jesus respond to their indignation? Uh, I think it's a beautiful picture of him just bringing them together. He says he gathered them together. It said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
but not so with you. And so he's taking, he says, look, in this world, there's position, there's powers, the, the weak serve the powerful. And he goes, that's upside down. I am molding you into the likeness of the kingdom of God. And it's the opposite of you. You want to be great, you got to be a servant. And then finally, I think we move on to, uh, to Jesus. And it's the ultimate compare and contrast with uh, the disciples that have throughout the book of Matthew have been very concerned with greatness. Uh, several chapters previously, uh, the question is, who is then the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and Jesus responds to that question with, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then further down, the topic comes up again, and they go, the greatest among you will be your servant. I mean, those are powerful words. And so we look at Jesus, and uh, I think so often in our society, we, uh, we really idolize the successful and the powerful. We, we say, you know, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. And I think that's why books sell. How many books do we see if someone is a president or someone is a CEO of a company or someone changes the world somehow and then they write a biography about, look, this is how I became great. And it hits the New York Times bestseller. Uh, Michelle Obama's book just recently, uh, a few weeks ago, was the number one bestseller in the New York Times list for nonfiction. And so we just eat up this idea of how to be great, how to be great. There's just going to be a key somewhere. And so I think we can really just take a step back and if and be honest, say Jesus is the greatest of all time. You've probably heard goat, greatest of all time. You know, like we're not talking uh, LeBron, MJ. We're not talking, you know, it's so much bigger. Like from a historical standpoint, Jesus is the most important person to ever live. Like that, that's undeniable. He completely changed the course of, of Western history. He changed the Near East. Uh, he changes our lives today. And so I think if we're going to idolize greatness, we need to idolize what Jesus has. And uh, this is what he says to us. This is being the greatest. This is what he says to us. He says, Not so with you. And said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He says, You want to be in the top 10%? You want to be the, the top graduate from this discipleship course right here? He goes, Be a servant. That's, that's greatness. And he says, but if that's not good enough for you, he says, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And we're all, we're all familiar with the illustration of what slavery is. And, and ultimately, slavery boils down to the fact that you have no rights and your life is never about you. So if you can serve to that level, that will be the greatness and that will be the most fulfilling uh, life that you can live. And then he says, you know, you can be the greatest, but there's one greater. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, look, you can serve as if you're a slave, but I came to give my life to save the world. And he goes, that's the ultimate sacrifice. That's, that's the ultimate greatness right there. Uh, that does the most good for the most people. And look, when I do this, I'm, I'm changing the world. And so that's a pretty high calling. Like, how, how do we measure up to, to Jesus changing the world and giving his life? 
And I think through Christ's grace, he brings it down to this, and he boils it down to, he says, I want your life today. I want you to make the decision right now to die to who you are and to live for me today. And I want you to do that again tomorrow. And if you, uh, and to the Christians in this room, I want you to think about this in context. Of maybe you've walked with Jesus for most of your life, but there's those little things, the little things that are so hard to die to. Die to those today. And for those who haven't accepted Christ in your life, you want to be great? You know, like flat out, you want to be great in this life? You need to accept Christ today. That will be the greatest thing you ever do. There will be fullness. There will be joy. Uh, And I mean, how how do you go wrong? The greatest man in the world said, give me your life and uh, you'll be great. Lord, I just thank you uh, for your sacrifice. I just thank you for uh, your willingness to come and meet us, God. And I just thank you that as we come to church today, uh, as we come and we get to just experience your greatness and experience your love and your family for us, God, that uh, it's life-changing. And I just pray that uh, this experience today, that not just this short message, not just this short talk, Uh, and nothing that Chet Miller said today, but rather this experience of this sermon and this experience of this church would go forth and would change our lives this week, God. I just ask through that change that we would change others' lives, uh, and God, ultimately, that just your kingdom would be expanded this week, uh, and that people would feel true love, uh, and that is love of you.